Wednesday, August 1st, 2018. This is Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Timothy Lawson. Exciting week here at the Department of Veterans Affairs as we welcome our new secretary, Robert Wilkie. He was sworn in on Monday and has already started uh, his endeavor as our official secretary yesterday. He is the 10th Secretary of Veterans Affairs. That does not include all of the acting secretaries we've had. Those are confirmed secretaries. He's the 10th confirmed sworn in secretary for the Department of Veterans Affairs. Very excited to have him. Looking forward to his leadership. On Tuesday, he released a video uh, as a message to his workforce to introduce himself as the new secretary and to pledge his allegiance to them as VA continues strive to provide the best care for veterans. Hello, I'm Robert Wilkie, and it is an overwhelming honor to serve alongside you as secretary. There are two emotions for me today. The first is feeling very humbled. I was humbled by the honor of being a candidate for this job, and even more humbled by the call to be your next secretary. The second emotion is that of being very, very excited and thrilled. Thrilled to be part of this wonderful department. I'm deeply grateful to President Trump for the opportunity to serve for him and for America's veterans. I'm also grateful to the United States Senate and the Veterans Service Organizations for their votes of confidence. First off, I want to thank you, the people of VA. Whether you are at a health care facility, on the benefits team, serving at our cemeteries, or here as part of our staff at headquarters. You may not hear it enough, but I want you to hear it from me. Thank you. Thank you for your tireless work and devotion to America's veterans. And thank you for all you do to help them and their families every day. When President Hoover signed the executive order in 1930, creating the Veterans Administration, he consolidated veterans programs and created a new independent administration for the relief of veterans. Eighty years later, that is still our charge. Serving our veterans is a noble calling. We have a solemn responsibility to our veterans not just today, but in the months and years to come, to set the standard for the millions coming into our VA and for the millions who will join the ranks down the years. During my confirmation hearing and in previous messages to you while serving as the acting secretary, I shared with you my basic philosophy, customer service. Customer service must start with each other, not talking at each other, but with each other across all office barriers and across all compartments. If we don't listen to each other, we won't be able to listen to our veterans and their families, and we won't be able to provide the world-class customer service they deserve. Next, we must have a bottom-up organization. The energy must flow from you who are closest to those we are sworn to serve. It is from you that the ideas we carry to the Congress, the VSOs, and to America's veterans will come. Anyone who sits in this chair and tells you he or she has the answers is in the wrong business. And I want to share with you a story that I often use from President Eisenhower. Five months after his inauguration, about 40 Korean War veterans climbed aboard the presidential yacht Williamsburg. Many were missing limbs, and some were horribly disfigured. When Ike arrived at the pier, the Secret Service began running up the plank to separate the president from his troops. Before they reached the deck, Eisenhower yelled, Halt! I know these men. 
The agents retreated and the soldiers gathered around the president. He said there was nothing the country could do for them that could compensate for what they had already given to America. He then addressed them in attention, and those who could stand did. And he said, you will never put your uniform away. You are always on duty. But you must get well to remind your countrymen every day that freedom is never free. This is our VA. We are here to care for all of our nation's heroes whose service and sacrifice inspires all Americans. That is our important and non-negotiable mission. The President and the Congress support us, and I'm honored and excited to help you lead this organization. I look forward to meeting you, listening to you, and serving alongside you. I value your thoughts and insights as we improve our department for the challenges in the years ahead. Thank you, and God bless. Again, we look forward to working alongside Secretary Wilkie as we continue moving forward with providing care to our nation's veterans. This week's episode is with J.J. Pinter, the executive director of Team RWB. He was the second official employee of Team RWB. That's how how far back he goes with the organization. Him and I have a really great conversation, not only about his, we learned about his his service and, and those aspects like we do week to week from veterans, but as we get into the nuance of who he is and what he does with Team RWB, we learn a lot about his perspective in the veteran space, how Team RWB measures its success in delivering um, its benefits to veterans and how they help veterans grow, um, how they manage themselves inside the veteran space, the focus of their staff, all a bunch of great stuff. I know you're going to enjoy it. Here it is, here's my interview with Team RDBB Executive Director, JJ Pinter. Enjoy. There are nearly 2 million women veterans who served and deserve the best care anywhere. VA is dedicated to meeting the unique needs of all women veterans. VA offers comprehensive primary care and women's health specialty care. Women veterans who are interested in receiving care at VA should call the Women Veterans Call Center at 855-VA-WOMEN or contact the nearest VA Medical Center and ask for the Women Veterans Program Manager. Visit www.va.gov slash womenvet. JJ Pinter, uh, you were the second employee for Team RDB. Is that right? Second official employee? Second official employee. And you're now currently the executive director. Um, we're going to talk about Team RDB extensively for uh, later on, but we're going to start this, JJ, where we start all of our interviews, and that is the decision to join the United States military. Bring us back to that day for you. Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. So I was I graduated from high school in 1997, and my dad was a was an army veteran, and had really thought about enlisting in the army. Honestly, and my mom felt really strongly about me going to school and getting an education, and she just kind of said, "If you don't do it right now, life will get in the way, and and you probably won't do it." And I grew up on a very rural town in southern Michigan, local army recruiter, talked to him, and he said, well, there's this thing called West Point that I don't really know much about, but it's it's a college, and it's the army, and you know maybe you should look into that. And I didn't even really – I had heard the name. I didn't really know what it was, and I kind of said, yeah, okay, cool. Just let me know. 
And he showed up to our house uh, a few days later with a brochure on West Point. So I'm a junior in high school. And I would like to say that it was it came from this place of like sublime altruism. And I, there was certainly some aspect of that, of wanting to serve my country. But there was a very kind of economic incentive to this, too, where I didn't have – you didn't really have any money for college and was looking for a way to, to get some some money from college. And it was a pretty safe time. And if you think back to the late 90s, there hadn't been any armed conflict in a while. And so I ended up squeezing through the cracks. I still to this day, I'm not sure how it happened. But I was in, I squeezed through the cracks and was able to get accepted to West Point. And that really started my Army career. And you, uh, you went in as a field artillery officer, is that right? I did. I graduated. I was commissioned as a field artillery officer. But I always feel a little guilty saying that to people because if you think about the time frame, I graduated in 2001 in June of 2001 and then September 11th happened immediately thereafter and that kind of framed my whole army experience yeah but we weren't shooting a lot of big artillery in Iraq at the time so I didn't really shoot much artillery in my artillery career we kind of like everybody else did kind of task organized as like this kind of quasi you know infantry battalion and did convoy security so yeah it was a uh, it was a very different experience. So I did wear the cross cannons on my collar for sure, but I don't really have the depth of experience. Uh, I find that artillery uh, artillery men I feel weird saying that artillery men and women love to talk about shooting artillery, and I can't really engage in those conversations because I don't really have too much experience. Sure. So you graduated in June. Um, where where were you then? Uh, come September. So I had just gotten off some some leave in the summer. There was a fantastic program called HRAP, which is the hometown recruiting program, which I was able to effectively extend my summer leave even longer. And I had reported to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, to begin what at the time was called uh, the Field Artillery Officer Basic Course. They've now changed it to Bullock, I believe. And yeah, so I was at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and I had just reported, and the course had started mid-August. So when um, so tell me about from your from from where you were in uh, in the army. Tell me what you the the shift that you saw between September ten two thousand and one and September twelve two thousand and one. Well, it was a really interesting time to be in the army, I, and I will never forget this. I know everyone has their September eleventh experience, but I was actually out on a range at Fort Sill, and back then there wasn't cell phone service everywhere and you kind of left the main base and there was no cell phone service. And so we're out on a range and we're riding the bluebird buses and come back late in the day. And our battalion commander is sitting there waiting for us in this, with this kind of solemn look on his face and we get off the bus and they have a little formation and, and they tell us about what happened and they lock like everyone else locked down Fort Sill, nobody on, nobody off. And I, I knew that I was going to Fort hood and there's, there's two divisions or at the time there was two divisions at Fort Hood. There was the first cavalry division and the fourth infantry division. We didn't know which division we were, I was going to be in. And I found out later I was going to be in the first cav, but it immediately changed the training and put some urgency in the training because I think everybody knew that the war was going to kick off. But then 
fast forward a little bit farther, we, we knew that the 4th Infantry Division was going to be as part of the, the expeditionary force from Fort Hood and that the 1st Cav was going to follow them up. So I found out I was going to go to the 1st Cav. So I knew I wasn't going to deploy immediately, immediately, but I was going to get there and have eight or 10 months or a year to kind of train before we left. And in one sense, it was this incredibly intense time because we knew that we were going to go back up the 4th ID and rip with them and take over. So we were really training hard. But in other sense, you know, I was a, I was a young man in my early twenties. It was one of the funnest times of my life because we also were really trying to, you know, spend a lot of time in Austin, Texas, and I won't go into any incriminating details here, but it was, <laughs> it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And I, and I, I really enjoyed that part of my life. And so it's this kind of odd juxtaposition. Yeah. T- tell me about a, a close friend or a great leader that you had in, in the military. You can tell, you can choose either one, but tell me about that person. Well, I'll tell you about a couple. Uh, a close friend and a great leader, we were just talking about this earlier, would be Blaine Smith. Um, for those of you who don't know, Blaine Smith is the former executive director of Team Red, White, and Blue. He's been on the VA podcast. He's a fantastic guy. He was my roommate at West Point for two years. We both served in the 1st Cavalry Division together. We were in different brigades, but I still saw him a lot then. We deployed together at the same time. And then, you know, we took different routes. I ended up leaving the Army, and he ended up going the special operations route after that. And then we came back together and later in life. But <clears throat> this rare balance of someone who is your peer and you can, you know, relate with, but you can also respect and learn from someone is a really interesting place to be because they also are in that spot where they can very directly communicate you with you and say, Hey man, you're, you're, you're being stupid here or whatever it is. <laughs> and, and, and as a, as a young person, you can kind of receive that. So, you know, he is a person that, that stands out to me as, as a great leader and a good friend from that time. But I mean, I can list a bunch of others that I spent a ton of time with, you know, Mike Irwin, the founder of team RV. That's, you know, I, I met him during that period of my life. This guy named Jimmy Campbell, Mark McNamara. I mean, and then I had a fantastic battalion of people that I came in with and served with, you know, and I'm going to drop a couple names here just because these people mean a lot to me. Rashawn Jasani and Corey Clyburn and Danny Colantrelli and Tim Murphy and, and, you know, Micah Nordquist and Coley Tyler and just a bunch of, I came in with this crop of really good, you know, kind of fellow officers and spent a ton of time with them. What, what prompted your transition out then? Yeah. So if you think back to that point in time, I mean, this is 2006 at this point in time. The war is not going well. And by any realistic expectation, if you look to the future, you were looking at a year on, a year off deployments for the foreseeable future. And I just, I wasn't really, I don't know, I just wasn't too super jazzed about that. I had just met the person who is now my wife, but at the time we were dating and I was thinking about my, what my future would look like with her. And then there was some more practical without getting into like nerdy army doctrine. The army was doing this thing called the force 21 transformation at the time where they were restructuring and essentially the opportunities for advanced command for field artillery officers went away. And so I was looking to the future and saying, well, I don't really see a, a, a long-term career here for me because my path to 
to promotion is is effectively gone. So it was a, it was a whole host of things, but the biggest thing was, I mean, I think if you talk to most officers, they'll tell you this: the best time in their career is like lieutenant and young captain because that's when you're actually doing things still. So I looked at these field grade officers that I served with and they're like sitting in the battalion headquarters, writing, grinding out op orders. And I was like, that looks like it stinks. I want nothing to do with that. <laughs> and so that was, it just was the right time for me. Sure. You mentioned, uh, mentioned Blaine Smith. He was episode 11 of this podcast, which as of the, as of the time of this recording was 100 episodes ago. So it's, it's, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I can't believe it's. I can't believe this podcast has been around that long. Well, uh, I don't want to. I'm prob, I, I don't want to disappoint you, but I'm just going to be straightforward. He's more intelligent and articulate <laughs> than me. So I'm going to do my best, but it's not going to be as good. Very well. Well, we're prepared now. Um, so, to you know, give us whatever context you'd like before we start talking into Team RWB and the work that you're doing there. Um, give us, you know, fill any gaps that you'd like between your that your transition out of the military and um, becoming Team RWB's second employee. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing to think about because I did kind of the thing that that like company grade officers do when they get out. They kind of go do the corporate America thing because that's like the path that people tell you you're supposed to take. And I think I realized pretty early on that that wasn't the path for me. So I, I wound up working in the private sector. I worked in the private sector for a couple different big companies. And there's this interesting dynamic where on one hand, I want to do a good job and I'm a pretty competitive person. But on the other hand, when you strip it all away, I, there's, just, there's no purpose there. You're really what you're what you're trying to affect is stock price. Really, when you strip it all away and you're just trying to make a bunch of rich people even richer. And I just was really having a hard time getting my heart behind that. So that was one thing. As I was, you know, uh, disenfranchised is not the right word, but I just was looking around and saying, I don't think this is where I want to be full time. I, I can't see myself kind of doing the corporate thing for the rest of my career. That was one thing. The second thing was. I started to see real time some of my friends, people I served with, coworkers struggle with the transition in a big way getting out of the military. And I just a, a couple people in particular, I'm looking around and I'm saying like, man, these folks have everything going for them. They come from supportive families. They have financial resources. They're, you know, mentally strong. Some of them are like former college athletes. So they have like everything going for them and they're still struggling. Like what I remember thinking like, what the heck is happening to, to, to the people that don't have all of those things, right? Like when you don't have a supportive family or you've got like economic stress and you have other things in your life, like what the heck? I just remember thinking, what the heck is going on? And I never thought I would end up in the nonprofit world, not in a thousand years. But I just kind of found my way there because I was having these at work. I was just not super motivated about the lack of purpose and then having these experiences with some of my friends. And then I get an email from Mike Irwin right at the right time saying, hey, I'm starting this this nonprofit called Team Red, White and Blue serendipity <laughs> serendipity uh team red white and blue one of the uh fastest growing uh 
nonprofits in the veteran space, um, something that um, that no one has anything bad to say about it. And, 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 um, not that people should be speaking poorly of uh, of nonprofits or, or VSOs, but um, you know, you look around the space, and there's plenty of criticism of most organizations, and. Uh, you know, I'm sure there's someone out there with their own opinion uh, that goes against what I'm what I'm saying. But um, I have I'm yet to hear anybody when when speaking of Team RWB to have anything bad to say about it. They're either neutral or or, or completely positive. Uh, and I'm I'm curious as to what you credit that to. Well, I a I appreciate you saying that. Uh, when you work in the organization like I do and we spend all of our time focused on the things that we could be doing better, you know, I know all of the warts of the organization. Yeah. <laughs> and so sometimes you tend to, you know, to, to focus on those things. But we try to run the organization in a way that we're very proud of. And we have some very simple rules that we use here and that one of them is they're very simple, very basic, but you know, the old front page of the newspaper rule, if you wouldn't be proud of what you're doing to be on the front page of the newspaper, then you shouldn't be doing it. And then the second one is like, Hey, every penny that we spend was given to us by somebody, every penny. And I always want to be proud. If someone were to ask me how, how we spent their dollars, I want to be proud and I am proud and I always want to be proud to be able to tell them how we spend those dollars. So those two things at a very high level are some of the ways more overtly the way that we position the brand is really important. We try to be very inspirational. We try to be very inclusive and we try to be very positive and we are not divisive at all. So those are things I think that lend themselves to being a place that anyone can be part of. And, and Tim, it's very deliberate, right? Because we want lots of veterans to take part in Team RWB. And if we're saying things or doing things that could potentially be divisive or taking sides on issues by, by definition and, you know, any issue, even if it's a, an issue in supporting veterans, people believe both ways, then we, we could potentially be disenfranchising someone who might want to take part in our programs. And so we just choose not to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you definitely have a good reputation of working well with others. Uh, I know you collaborate with other nonprofits and VSOs in the space. Uh, often see the eagle flying alongside other uh, logos and trademarks. Um, you know how much you know. Obviously, people that are familiar um, with a lot of the the organizations in this space and in this community know that there's some natural rapport that goes back further uh that goes back a ways but you're always curating uh new uh new relationships and such i mean what sort of uh what sort of effort goes into that is that something that you're spearheading or, or your team's involved in how do you guys work uh work on collaborating with mo- other organizations yeah there's like there's there's two ways that this happens really at a very high level. One, our organization is run by volunteers. We have a very small staff of full-time employees that, that run the organization, but really our 2000 volunteer leaders are the people who actually, you know, run team RWB. And we just try to set the conditions so that they feel really comfortable in, in collaborating at the local level, because what we care about is serving veterans and, and how that's done is what matters. Then there's the more formal, hey, who are we going to have partnerships with or who are we going to work with on a formal way 
kind of headquarters to headquarters. And that's a very different thing. And this is actually a, a lesson that I learned kind of the hard way in, in the last six years. When you first get started and you're a young organization, you want to work with, with everybody and you kind of say, like, let's partner, let's partner, let's partner. And that sounds good, but partnerships are not ever going to last if you don't, if there's not a compelling need for both parties, if some, if both parties are not getting something out of it, it's not going to, to last. Right. And, and it's perfectly okay to have mutual admiration and respect of other organizations, but to not have like kind of formal signed partnerships with them because those partnerships require resources to, to maintain. And we all run really lean on the nonprofit side. And sometimes we don't have the resources to put towards those things. So that's kind of a long winded answer, but I would say, yeah, there's some organizations that, that we've, that we work with. And then there's a lot more that we just have respect and admiration for, and we try to do things together, but there's been a crop of about five or six that we were all, you know, we were all formed in kind of the late in 2008, 2010-ish time frame. Yeah. We've all kind of grown up together. And, you know, we I, we spend a lot of time with those. And, you know, some of them, right? Team Rubicon and then the mission continues and are, are a couple that, you know, we, we're all about the same age. Yeah. And I think, you know, same age, you guys work together, but I think there's still commonality in you just named organizations that I see that I most often see people proudly wearing the brand of, right? Like people love wearing their gray shirts from Team RDBB. I see the blue Mission Continues shirts uh, out and about. Um, IEVA also, you know, is, is another well represented uh, organization in that manner. Um, you mentioned, you know, your your focus is serving veterans in in uh, well, so tim let me actually oh, dive sure. in. do you mind if i dive into that a little bit no go ahead so i think there's a reason for that right because of the positivity that we spoke about before but i think some people call this different things i've heard people call it like the veterans empowerment movement or whatever you want to call it but i think they're from our organization and then i i'm i know from those other organizations and many more there is a there has been a victimization of veterans that has occurred over the last 15 years and we just fundamentally disagree with that and are much more in the camp of veterans are assets and that we need to challenge veterans to to take to, take charge of the transition process and to go back and to lead in their communities and the conversation we want the conversation to be to be much more about thriving than restoring deficits and I think that's a message that resonates with veterans. And I, I think that's why you're seeing that. Right. Um, you talked about focus on serving veterans, but one of the things that um, that Team RDB is known for is how inclusive it is it is of everybody right some of them some of the more uh involved team rdbb members i know are non-veterans what how is yeah. that how, yeah like how, tell me about the evolution of that and how that's become so critical in team rdb success yeah it's really interesting because when we first opened up the organization to to non-veterans very we did this very early on it was like heresy at the time uh, people really got upset about it. How could you have non-veterans be part of a veteran service organization? But our thought process was 
and part of what we're trying to accomplish is connecting veterans to their community. That's a really important part of our of our mission. And it's kind of like, well, you got to have supportive if you want to connect veterans to their community, you got to have supportive members of the community in the equation. And we, so we allowed early on community members to be part of the organization. Now, a, a good chunk of the civilian members are tied to the military in some way, you know, a, a spouse, family member, you know, friends, something like that. But some are not. Some are just great kind of red blooded Americans who just want to help. And some of our best chapter captains are, some of our best leaders are. And it's a fantastic thing when you have a volunteer who comes in because all they want to do is serve. I mean, those people are fantastic. So it's, it's been an important part of our model. It's been an important part of our mission and it's going to continue to be. So, you know, there's lots of volunteers, you said, uh, at Team RDB. One of the things that, that makes it uh, sustainable and, and growing, um, and you had that small staff. What what exactly, then, is your staff doing? Talk to us about sort of what the priorities are there at that higher level uh, and what your staff is doing to make sure that what's happening on the ground continues to grow and develop. Well, there's kind of two sides to the staff, right? So so there's the side of the staff that is all the kind of natural business functions that any business would have, right? We have to have, you know, financial people and some marketing people and business development people and technology and, all, you know, those kinds of things. And we run about as lean as we can there. And then we have the program side of the staff that is really focused on supporting volunteers, all of our chapters, all of our Eagle leaders, what we're trying to do is to give them the resources they need to remove roadblocks and obstacles and to allow them to empower them to be successful. So what that looks like in reality is we're broken down geographically and you have employees whose sole purpose in life is to interface with our volunteer leaders and to help those chapters be successful and then help in the development of our Eagle leaders or our volunteer leaders. Something I'm interested to hear, uh, uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on, um, and you can answer this however you want. Either you can answer as uh, J.J. Pinter, the veteran, or as the leader of a nonprofit, whatever it may be. Um, you know, in since, since I got out of the military in 2011, and even going a little bit before then, when I was sort of familiar what was going on in the veteran space, um, we've seen sort of the the rise and sort of the roller coaster and sort of the, um, you know, certain issues become more prominent than others. Um, you know, military sexual trauma and sexual harassment, you know, uh, had, a, you know, peaked. And then we saw um, homelessness. Then suicide was sort of like the leading issue. And it seems like homelessness is, uh, is being spoken about again, mental health and, and PTSD. And everything sort of gets its moments, gets its, uh, um, gets its exposure, if you will, Um you know, if you were to, if you, what would you say if you could, if you could give it a name, if you could narrow it down, what do you think the priority is in the veteran space as it comes to serving veterans and caring for them post military? Yeah, that's a really good question, Tim. I'm going to try to answer it. In I think there's some pretty good nexus between me and Team RWB, so I'm going to try to do my best to answer it that way. Okay. Let me let me start with the qualifier by saying that. People who come into kind of the veteran serving space do it because they care almost all of the time and they're doing 
what they they generally are involved in some facet of that that is close to their heart or in which they've had a personal experience and something that they care about. Now that can manifest itself to your point in not only lots of different kind of themes within that and how do we support veterans, but then also a myriad of different ways that those things can happen or, or mechanisms by which you could provide that support. And to your point, there's been things that have risen to the top in terms of visibility, things that the community has gotten engaged about, like employment would be kind of a, a perfect example of yeah, yeah. something that was really a big issue for a while and people got, people got really engaged about it and, and have been able to to move the needle on that. So in terms of what the things are, here's what I would say. There's a, a shift going on right now in the space where we are trying to move everybody towards high quality care. And so what that means is evidence-based practice um, based off science and then you know good program evaluation where we're measuring the outcomes of our programs using kind of universally accepted scales. And what that does, when we talk about measuring outcomes, so like in its most, I don't want to just use fancy kind of words here. In its most basic sense, what this means is, is a veteran better, Have you know, in an objective way, has, the, has their life improved since they've taken part in your programs? And what we're finding is that some things work better than others, and that addressing certain kind of components of, of veteran support are more effective than others. And so the system is somewhat self-regulating down to the things that really move the needle on outcomes. So that's a long way of answering the question. But I think it's to me, it's less about kind of the issue of the day or the issue du jour. And it's more about, hey, the resources are maybe constricting a little bit. And so we've got to make sure that they're focused on the things that really move the needle the most in the veteran community. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, I, I went into this question sort of talking about the issues that are in the veteran space, but if Oh man, I just, I, as a fellow podcaster, I'm pretty adept at like shifting questions around on the fly. So I did it to you. You know, you nailed it. You nailed it. What what I was going to say is I think I'm glad you went that, uh, I'm glad you took that answer the way you did. Cause I think if, if you look at it as just as topics in the veteran space and what's, what's being talked about, um, I think that, one of the things that I'm really excited to see a lot of people talk about, not just veterans, but people that are caring for veterans, people that are investing in care for veterans, is alternative methods of healing, right? Um, meditation, yoga, um, um, you know, other methods that unfortunately VA can't allow because they're not legal yet. Um, but I think it's, I, I'm really excited to see that um, we are taking a more holistic approach to healing veterans in whichever way that they're looking to be cared for um, and finding ways that work specifically for the veteran. Well, you bring up a really good point. And traditionally, when people thought about veteran support, it was almost kind of like Maslow's hierarchies of need, right? It's the basic needs, like we got a roof over people's heads and we got to get jobs and we got to get, you know, education, employment, we got we to meet these basic needs. The thought has, the thought process has really expanded such that 
yeah, those things are important, but this whole kind of broad umbrella of health and well-being is it used to be thought of as kind of a tier two need, but it's really being thought of in a way, in a much more holistic sense, right? In the sense that you got to stay healthy. You've got to have kind of good physical health, mental health, emotional health. You have to have service and purpose in your life. You have to have positive relationships in your life. These things, they're not just like fluffy kind of, you know, <laughs> you know, what I, I was going to make some terrible kind of millennial joke there that I won't make. They're not just, they're not just like fluffy things. They're really important to overall wellness. And you're going to be a better employee. You're going to be a better student. You're going to be a better parent. You're going to heal faster. All of these, all of these things when you, when you consider health and well-being. And that's, a, that's been a really important shift. And to your point, the ways that we can do this are, are much more broad than they were. I mean, when I got out of the I'm – I'm an avid yogi, full disclosure, love yoga. When I got out of the army – I would, you couldn't have drugged me to a yoga studio. I mean, there's, there's <laughs> nothing that someone could have done to get me into a yoga studio because it just had such a connotation of, you know, I don't need to go into details. Um, it just was not something that I would have done. And I can give you all sorts of examples of things like that, that are, that are changing. And it's a really good thing. I, it, you know, yoga and meditation have both evolved from this thing that veterans were sort of almost not, not shame or guilt, like, um, not ashamed, but sort of, um, embarrassed maybe is the closer word I can think of saying that they were like involved into now. If I mention to other veterans that I enjoy yoga and I try to meditate, like it either inspires, uh, it either gets like a conversation because they do it too, or they're interested in finding out what it's like, you know, and, um, it, it, the reception of that approach is just so different even just five years later you know like thinking back to um like 2013 2012 it, you know it still was sort of some did it some didn't and there was still like that um uh, that stigma attached to it now I, I feel like it's encouraged and more and more veterans are uh not only willing but uh, are, are really advocating for it I, I remember the first time i told my we we host yoga camps at team rwb and i remember the first time i i went to one of these and did my first yoga session a, it was a Bikram yoga, which is hot yoga. If you've never done it, I got crushed in that. <laughs> I got absolutely destroyed. So if, you, if you're listening to this and you think that yoga is not physically challenging, go to a Bikram yoga session, then tweet at me and tell me how you feel. I just got destroyed. I was just trying not to pass out in the room. How do you, how do you stay on the mat? Like even in normal yoga, I get all sweaty. My palms get slick. I have a hard time like keeping myself up simply because... I'm I'm slick from sweat. Oh, you, do you, use, you you don't use the traditional yoga mat. You use a towel. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and I'm not a big, huge hot yoga fan. I I, I do it occasionally, but yeah, I use a towel to kind of keep you sticky. Yeah. Uh, but I remember I told my dad that I had gone and done this yoga, and and he was his response was, "Isn't that just like chanting and stretching?" <laughs> <laughs> Like, no, dad, there's a little bit more to it than that. But that was his, he's an army vet and that was kind of his, you know, thought process. Yeah. You, you mentioned, um, you know, talking about evaluating, you know, evaluating what you do, um, that helps veterans evaluating is a veteran better because they've gone through your program. How does team RWB evaluate what they're doing to help veterans through that lens that you just talked about? 
Yeah. You, you bring up, you keep bringing up these, it's like you do this all the time, Tim. You, you, <laughs> you ask these really good questions. Thank you. It was possible. So there's two, there's a couple ways to answer this. It was possible five, 10 years ago as a nonprofit, when you think about fundraising, because you need dollars to run your organization, it was possible to kind of wrap yourself in the flag and, kind of, you know, find some compelling stories. And then, you know, you could, you could fundraise that way pretty effectively. Not anymore. The, it's not that the American public doesn't care. There's other things that, that they're concerned about right now. And we're just getting farther and farther removed from these wars. And it's just less and less kind of proximal to people. So you have to, what that's caused is you have to be as an organization, be able to better demonstrate results and that what you're doing works because investors, especially larger investors, that's what they care about. They care about generating outcomes, positive outcomes. So there is a, there's a push to do this partially because this is what the funding community wants to do, but this is what we want to do. We want to make sure that what we're doing works. So we've been trying to, to, to be good at program evaluation from the beginning. Now, that being said, it's hard. Things like measuring well-being, like applying quantitative measures to qualitative things is hard. It's like saying, how much do you love someone? It's like putting a number to that. Like, a, you know, what makes it a 79 out of 100 versus a 38 out of 100 like, in a way that is like academically valid and like mathematically repeatable and all these things. It's hard. There are scales that exist out there that people can use. And in the beginning, people would say to us, oh, you should use this scale for grit or you should use this scale for resilience or the BA's got one called the M2CQ. Like you should use that. That's like the. I don't even remember the acronym, something to veteran to, to civilian quotient or something like that. And we just kind of looked at these and said, well, but none of these, these scales are great, but this isn't what we do. Like our programs, this is not our mission. This isn't our programs. So we have a fantastic research director. Her name is Dr. Caroline Angel. And over the last half a decade, we have worked with Syracuse University to develop our own survey instrument. So we have a tool called the Enriched Life Scale, which is a which is a validated survey instrument, which measures or quantifies it's a psychometric scale, so it quantifies enrichment. And so for us, a rich, enrichment is health plus people plus purpose. So how much physical, mental, emotional health do you have? Relationships, shared individual purpose. Um, service, like all of those things. And it provides a number. And so for us, we're looking at are people, do they have a more rich life after they've engaged with team RDB than when they started? And can we use the data that we have to identify some traits or characteristics or demographics of people who might be more under enriched or less enriched and try to go find veterans like that? I didn't mean to nerd out on you. No, that, no, that's great. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm just trying to think what my what my uh, what the right follow up question is. I, well, so so let, let me kind of run it back at you to give you a little sure. bit of time, a little, give a little bit of time to think. So the, maybe the Myers Briggs assessment, it's a personality test. Like that's that's something that a lot of people might be familiar with. You can go take you know you can go onto their website and and fill out this survey, and it will provide some some data back to you. 
that's what we're talking about here, right? It's like fundamentally trying to quantify something that is that is like qualitative in nature, but to do it in a way that that makes sense. And that's what we're trying to get at. We're trying to be able to to move those numbers and to increase the amount of enrichment in someone's life. Has um, one thing that I've, we've seen nonprofits in the veteran space do is try to do too much, try to offer too much to the veteran, try to be involved in too many aspects of caring for the veteran. Um, what have you had to do at Team RWB to keep that in check? One of the most important things that we have done, I think, is to learn how to say no from a very early from a very, very early kind of stage in the organization. And you don't nobody likes saying no to people, but it just becomes a question of focus and it becomes a question of resources. We have a mission that we feel really strongly about. And unless something happens and we change our mission, which I don't see happening, we're going to stay locked in on accomplishing that mission. So you just have to have the discipline to say, is this thing going to help us accomplish the mission? Yes or no. The answer is, if the answer is no, then we don't do it. Now, there is, we, you know, the term that people use is grant chasers, right? There are, there are some people who will go out and try to get grants for, for things that, are tangentially related or maybe even unrelated to what their organization is set up to do, they'll get a grant and they'll spin it up and go try to do that thing. I think that's where you can, that's one of the ways for us. I just have no interest in doing that because I mean, there's so much work we can do to get better just at our mission. And I wouldn't even want to think about trying to do something new at this point, but saying no is really important. Just, yeah. just just being focused and, and saying no and asking the really hard questions of, is this going to help us accomplish our mission? Even if I really like this person or this organization, um, if not, then we just say no thanks. You know, and I wanted to ask you that because I'm, you know, one thing, I don't see it so much anymore. Really, It really has uh, sort of cleaned itself up in the past few years. But uh, I would say in the first couple of years that I was uh, out of the military, um, everybody was trying to start their own 501c3 to help veterans. And the ones that didn't yeah. do, you know, the ones that I saw go away as quickly as they came were the ones that didn't have a defined mission and, one, and, and then all and those were usually also the ones that were hoping or claiming that they were going to try to do um, too much. And uh, I mean, I, I think I lost count of how many how many veteran nonprofits contacted me as being the one stop shop for, for veterans, you know, for veterans issues. Uh, and you know, it's like, I don't I don't think that's going to work out for you. And soon, you know, and eventually, uh, you know, mo- most of those organizations are no longer around. Um, so what's 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 next, right? So like Team RDBB, you have this mission. You're trying to serve veterans, and I know you're 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 looking for ways to to do that more effectively, more efficiently. Um, you know, Team RDBB as a concept is pretty simple, but I know that managing all that is still complex. Um, you know, looking at looking at you know end of 2018, looking into 2019, what are some improvements or developments that that Team RDB is looking at that you can share with the audience? 
Yeah. So there, there's a couple things in there. I want to try to take them by in pieces here. Okay. You said something really important that, that what we do is simple. It is. What we do is incredibly simple and that's the beauty of it. But it's also, that can also be the, the detriment when talking to supporters of the organization, because it's not this very, when you're talking to businesses sometimes or, or corporations, it's not this really compelling kind of, you know, tragic thing that, yeah. that they get together and they run. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's it, right? Please so, support us. So that's that is the challenge, right? Because we've tried to take a very kind of positive approach to fundraising, which is a important part of what every nonprofit has to do. And what we do is so simple and so positive, but it works. It works so well. But just building relationships with with supporters such that they they understand that is really important. So that's that's a big consideration for us because we're we're very conscientious of how we present the brand to people and how we present veterans to people and how we present the organization to people. It's a really important part of of kind of our DNA and what we do. So in terms of what's next, for us it's really we're talking of questions of scale. Our, we, we've got the business model pretty well locked down. Like now we can always, can always, and we're going to try to get, continue to get better at how we support our chapters and our leadership development program, but the bones of it are there. And so it really becomes questions of how do we serve our current members better? How do we provide more enrichment to them? And how do we get more new veterans that can take part in our program? So it just becomes issues of scale and, there is the scale in terms of like building out the programs, but then there's the scale in terms of funding the programs in, in a long-term sense. So for us, those, that's really what it's about. It's how do we put the systems in place so that we can continue to grow? And then how do we continue to get better? So we are serving more veterans in more places, but no, no fundamental shifts. We're not going to start doing anything, you know, different or new. That's really it for us. Okay, um, and before we get to the to the, the closing out questions, um, I, I, if if there's anybody listening who is this is the first time they've heard of Team RWB uh, and are intrigued at what we're talking about, um, how does how does one find a local chapter? I think that that's um, I think that might be when I tell people to check out Team RWB in their local area. I think sometimes I forget to tell them how they should do that. Um, you know, how does one become engaged with Team RWB? Yeah. So fortunately now this is, this is pretty simple because we have spent a lot of the last two years putting together digital infrastructure that works really well. So the simple answer is go to our website, teamrdb.org. There you can join the team. Uh, very simple. You can get a free team RDB Nike shirt. If you're a veteran for joining the team, more importantly, you can find where the closest chapter is. And we have over two, we're in over 200 locations right now. So Chances are if you live where most Americans live, there's a chapter relatively close to you. And even beyond that, there's a list of all the events that are going on around you. So you can you can join the team, you can register to be a member, and there's a very simple it's, it's geo encoded 
list of events. You can find out what's going on around you at any time and you can come get involved. It doesn't cost anything. It's very simple. It doesn't cost anything. We just want people to show up and take part in it. Yeah. Uh, JJ, the last two questions I'd like to, to put at the end of every interview. Um, first, what? give me a skill set or an experience you had in the military that's contributing to your success today. So that's a really interesting question, and it's always hard for me to tease out the things that I learned tr- just in the military versus the things that kind of came from my childhood and then were amplified by the military, if that makes sure. sense. Yeah, absolutely. But I would say one of the things that really helps me out now is, and this sounds so simple and so silly, but I think the some of these simple things are, are really important sometimes is just the ability to stay, to stay kind of calm and even, and to try to not make rash decisions when no matter what you do, there are things in our life that, that we get stressed about or feel urgent or whatever it is. And just the ability to, because I have been in stressful kind of real world dangerous situations, it allows me to have some perspective and to try to just stay calm and make unemotional decisions in this job. And I think that's probably one of the things that has served me better than anything, because I find that anytime you're making decisions that are charged with emotion, they're not as good as they could be. Tell me about a veteran or a veteran organization that you're familiar with other than team RWB that has you excited about what they're doing right now. That has me excited about what they're doing right now. Like one of the easy answers is Team Rubicon. I mean, yeah. I think the work that they do over there is fantastic. And I, I know Jake Wood personally. He's a, he's an outstanding guy. They, they do awesome work over there. I think it's great. Um, a friend of mine, his name is Jason McCarthy. He's the founder of GoRuck. It's a, it's a for-profit company that makes awesome gear and they run awesome events. That's something that is working on. I'm going to list a couple here that I think are awesome. So Goruck is another one. Uh, a friend of mine, his name is Matt Griffin. He's my classmate at West Point. He runs a company called Combat Flip Flops. You, ah. you might have seen him on Shark Tank. Yeah. Um, really great. I love the social good that his company does. He's, a, he's an awesome guy. I think they do good stuff. I mean, I just get a chance. It's hard to pick because there's so many cool, but those are a couple that just kind of roll off the uh the the tip of my tongue here yes uh jake wood unfortunately has not made a an appearance on this podcast but uh one of his uh, one of his staff has uh Del- Cruz. what i can't remember his oh, first art. name art there Delacruz. we go art yeah L- art Dela Cruz has been on the show um jason mccarthy and his wife emily were actually just recently on the podcast before the star Cor- star course event they did here in dc i did the star uh, course event okay yeah this is the, the most miserable 18 hours of my life <laughs> you know he was he was he was at va uh and we were we were talking and i was and i was getting a little inspired as we were talking about it right everybody likes a good challenge right and i'm like ah oh, is there so it's just still time to sign up and then when we were done i was like never mind that sounds awful i don't want to do that so i was on jason's team actually it was me okay. jason and, and, and blaine uh and let me set the stage. It was it was May 18th, so it was in the end of May. You wouldn't think it would be cold. It rained five and a half. It had been raining all week. It rained five and a half inches, and it got down into the upper 40s at night, and it was just wet and cold, and it was just a big suck fest is basically what it was. 
Uh, and then uh, Griffin uh, has not been on the show yet, but um, his his media rep and I are, are are in talks with each other, and we just haven't found the right time to get him on. But uh, Griffin, um, when not running combat flip flops, uh, is doing a great job as being a stunt double for Matthew McConaughey. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> I mean, but I mean, there's, there's just so many people that are doing really really yeah. amazing stuff right now that I I don't know it, it it's tough. Yeah. No, I get you. I get you. Um, I, I, who, I always, who would be your favorite? Has anyone asked you this question yet? You know, it's fun. No one's really asked me any of these questions. Um, I think episode 50, I had my colleague interview me and I think I answered some of the staples, but I don't, not sure if this one is me, if I answered this one or not. Um, who has me excited? Uh, Nate, if I'm talking about just veterans who I'm having a fun watching, um nate boyer has like i watched i like seeing everything he's doing um oh, he was on so quick plug go we ahead have, we have a podcast the team rb podcast uh and nate was one of our early guests on it so he he is pretty inspiring to watch as well yes uh fred wellman um founder of scout comms he was episode two i think or episode three of this podcast was he on is he known for being the founder of scout comms or is he is he known for starting the team rwb chapter in fredericksburg virginia um maybe will, Sto- maybe scout comms okay I'll yeah i'll just say he, he if you want to get the plug in here for <laughs> for that chapter we can but i'm pretty no, sure no, no. people fred, know for fred, scout comms. fred was a volunteer leader for us and he he started a fantastic chapter i mean what he does at scout comms is amazing he's right. just he's just generally one of the most fun and high energy people that you'll spend any time around sure um and then will hubbard um who's oh, from, at from sva yeah he he has to be one of the most influential people in the veteran space that most veterans don't know, right? Like if you, if you were to start listing the veterans that, that that the average veteran or the average person in the veteran community is aware of, like the Jake Woods, the um, you know the Paul Rykoffs of the world, like people the, are familiar the, with those the names. Matt, the Matt Bests of the world. The Matt Bests of the world, right? But if you really look at someone who has made a huge impact on the veteran community, specifically from an education and policy standpoint, Will Hubbard is it deserves to be among those names. Um, and it's it's been cool being in the same town as him and, and literally watching and hearing other people talk about his work. Yeah, uh, he and he actually is still – he's deployed right now, still is continuing yep. to serve in addition to the work he's doing um, on the Hill and supporting veterans. Yeah, yeah. How, how about that? Sir, continues to serve, uh, lives in D.C., helps get the Forever GI Bill drafted and passed, and then goes off and gets deployed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Puts the uniform uh, back on and gets deployed. Yeah. Exactly. I think that just drives my point home. Uh, JJ, it's been a pleasure talking to you, sir. Uh, I, I, I'm always open to talking to people um, that are a part of Team RWB because it is such a uh, an easy concept for people to understand and want to be a part of, and yet so powerful in the way that impacts people's lives. So uh, it was a real pleasure talking to you, sir. Well, I appreciate it, Tim. It was I, it's a, it's odd because I'm usually on the other side of the microphone and, and being the person asking the questions, and I find it quite odd to be on the receiving end. So <laughs> it's been an interesting but a really good experience, and you've made it really easy. I appreciate it. I served in Vietnam. I served in World War II. I served in Afghanistan. And VA serves us all. No matter when you served... 
No matter if you saw combat or not. There are benefits for veterans of every generation. See what VA can do for you. To learn what benefits you may be eligible for, visit www.va.gov. That's www.va.gov. Again, Team RWB is all around the nation. If you go to teamrwb.org, you can find a chapter or event near you. This week's Medal of Honor citation reading is for Donald Truesdale. Service is United States Marine Corps. Rank of Corporal. Second Nicaraguan campaign is the conflict. Year of Honor, 1932. Citation reads, Corporal Truesdale was second in command of Guardia Nacional Patrol in active operations against armed bandit forces in the vicinity of Constancia near Coco River, northern Nicaragua on 24 April 1932. While the patrol was in formation on the trail searching for a bandit group with which contact had previously been made, a rifle grenade fell from its carrier and struck a rock igniting the detonator. Several men close to the grenade at the time were in danger. Corporal Truesdale, who was several yards away, could easily have sought cover and safety for himself. Knowing full well the grenade would explode within two or three seconds, he rushed for the grenade, grasped it with his right hand, and attempted to throw it away from the patrol. The grenade exploded in his hand, blowing it off and inflicting serious multiple wounds about his body. Corporal Truesdale, in taking the full shock of the explosion, saved the members of his patrol from loss of life or serious injury. We honor his service. That wraps up episode 115 of Born the Battle. I thank you so much for taking the time to listen. You can read more stories from our community at our blog, blogs.va.gov. You can check out the video from Secretary Wilkie's uh, message to his workforce there as well. We'll be back next week. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I'm Timothy Lawson. Signing off.